You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. pray together. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning and we acknowledge that you are the King of kings, that you are the Lord of lords. We bow before you and confess that without you we are nothing. When you found us, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Without God and without hope. Yet because of your great mercy and the love with which you loved us, even when we were dead, you made us alive. And as that song says, you resurrected us. You brought us out of our tomb, the tomb of blindness tomb of sin where we loved darkness more than light. The tomb of rebellion. The tomb of just spiritual insensitivity and carnality. And you gave us a new heart. You put your spirit within us. And you quickened us and you made us alive. By grace we have been saved. What great grace. And so we're thankful, Lord. And as we talk about grace today, as we think about how you have expressed to us your love and your kindness and your your mercy, I pray that you would just warm our hearts again with the amazing grace of God that we might live transformed, God-glorifying lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Worship team for blessing us with that, uh, with that beautiful piece of music. Um, I just want to thank the elders for this um, really sacred privilege, for the honor of being asked to serve as the interim pastor here at uh, Harvest Niagara. I look forward to getting to know each of you personally and uh, in the time that I have here. And I don't want to spend too much time talking about me other than just to say that I'm, I'm honored and blessed to be able to fill this role for the limited time that God will call me here. I'm excited about what God is doing in, in Harvest Niagara, and I'm excited about being part of that, and I trust that in the months ahead that as we serve together, the Lord, and as we work together, that God will honor that and that he will use that for his glory and for the furtherance of his kingdom. Uh, Today I'd like to begin a series of sermons on uh, the book of Ephesians. Uh, Paul wrote Ephesians from uh, prison or house arrest in Rome in the early 60s AD. He had planted the church of Ephesus, and you can read about that in in Acts chapter 19 and and following. He had planted that church in about 53 or 54 
AD, and he had served that church for three years, longer than he had stayed anywhere. So he had a deep affection for this church family, and he loved these people. He knew them. Uh, he was writing to them to encourage them. Unlike, say, 1 Corinthians or, or the book of Galatians, there was no one big problem that caused Paul to have to write this letter. He wasn't rebuking them. He wasn't challenging them. He wasn't telling them to change their behavior in any way. He wasn't trying to fix their theology. He was just writing a warm pastoral epistle to people that he loved who were faithful in Christ Jesus. And so if you have your Bible, I'd like to read for you the first 14 verses of this passage. It begins by the, by, with these words, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before love, before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So the book of Ephesians itself is divided into two sections. The first section, excuse me, the first three chapters speak about what God has done for us in Christ. He speaks about God's grace, God's saving action in history to redeem us, his church. It's all about the gospel. It's all about theology. It's all about what God has done for us. It's very typical of the Apostle Paul. You think of the book of Romans as an illustration. The first 11 chapters of the book of Romans are all about the theological truths that our faith is based on. And then he begins in chapter 12 with, therefore, I want you to live this way. And the same thing happens here in in Ephesians. The first three chapters are theological in nature. The last three chapters are practical in nature. The last three chapters are essentially a response to the first three chapters. If, If this is what God has done for us in Christ, if God has shown us his amazing grace this way, then how should we live? And the answer is chapters four, five, and six. This pattern of truth and response, as I said, is very, very typical with the Apostle Paul. And we actually see it, again, repeated in the, in the introduction. Let me just read that to you again. 
It, it begins very similarly to um, ancient letters. It begins with the author identifying himself, then he identifies the people to whom he is writing, and then he gives a greeting. And this is exactly what Paul does, very typical of how people wrote letters in the day. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, so he identifies himself to the saints who are in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So he identifies the people he's speaking to, And then, and this is where we see this truth response thing. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. You see, we have the truth. God is good. God is gracious. God is merciful. And as a consequence, you and I can have peace. Because of the truth that we know, there is a response that we can enjoy. Because of who God is, God is filled with grace, filled with love, filled with unconditional mercy towards his children. The consequence is is that we can have peace, truth and response. My prayer for Harvest Niagara is this. As we go through this passage of scripture, that what Paul prayed for the Ephesians would be experienced by us. That prayer, you can read it with me in chapter 3, verses, the end of verse 17 going into 18. His prayer is this, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, the height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. So my prayer for you, even today, is that you would understand the length and breadth, height and depth of the love of God. Not that we'll ever understand it, that we would plummet deeper, that we would go deeper into the grace of God, that we would understand it more fully, and it would grip us, that grace would grab us as, as it's never grabbed us before, that we would know more about the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of God for me personally, for you personally. And that truth, that truth would produce a response of obedience, which will produce ultimate blessing in your lives. See, the truth of the Bible is this, that you can't live out the imperatives of Scripture until you understand the truth of Scripture. That's why chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians come before 4, 5, and 6. We don't start at chapter 4 with all of the imperatives, with all of the commands, with all of the things that we are supposed to do. Paul never starts there. God doesn't want us to start there. We'd call that legalism, just rules-based Christianity or religion. That's not where God wants us to start. He always wants us to start with the truth. And it's always grace. It's always God's love for us. Before we can live out the imperatives, we've got to understand the truth. And for this to happen, for us to live out the truth the way that God wants us to, and I believe the way that we want to, in order for us to live the imperatives of Ephesians, or any other book of the Bible for that matter, in order for us to live the imperatives of the word of God, we've got to understand grace. We must elevate grace. We must elevate and magnify the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Say it differently. Grace, 
the more magnificent God's grace is in our minds and our hearts, the easier it will be for us to live the way that God has called us to live. The, the more that we understand the grace of God, the more that we will experience the peace of God. And this is exactly what Paul is wanting for us. In the first 14 verses of the book, the passage that I just read to you right now, Paul has repeated a phrase, and I don't know that, if you, I don't know that you noticed it when I first read it, but he repeats a phrase that I want to point out to you, and it's important. In, in verses uh, 6 and 12 and, later, and, and verse 3, he says that our salvation is to the praise of his glory or to the praise of his glorious grace. So, so Paul is writing all of these things that God has done for us in Christ. Why? To bring glory and praise to his grace. To magnify the grace of God. In verses 3 through 14, Paul is doing two things. He's telling us what God did to save us. And then he's telling us God's ultimate motive in saving us. And God saved us. God saved me. God saved you for one fundamental overriding purpose. And that is to demonstrate the glory, the magnificence of his amazing grace. God didn't save me just to get me to heaven. That is the consequence he saved me to demonstrate to all of creation in all of time that he is magnificent and that his grace is awesome. It's amazing grace. He, he saved us to reveal the greatness of his grace, the greatness of his mercy, the greatness of his loving kindness, the greatness of his unconditional love. And for us to understand grace, so for us to understand it, for us to really plumb the depths, to appreciate the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the grace of God, one thing is critical. And that one thing is humility. Humility. And this is Paul's intention for us. He wants us, at the beginning of this book, to be humbled. So you look at the book, sort of step back a little bit and look at it as a whole. It's clear that Paul's intention, the beginning of this book, is to magnify the grace of God and to humble us. Paul talks about what God has done in salvation. So I don't know if you noticed this, but when I read this, this passage, it's all about what God has done for us so let me just sort of pick a couple of verses here at random. He, ch he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us. In him, we have redemption. He has lavished upon us all wisdom and insight. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. In him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Like over and over and over again in this passage of scripture, Paul is drawing our attention to the magnificence of God's grace and that 
that it's all of God. It began in the heart of God and it is accomplished by the person of God, the triune person of God. And his purpose is to elevate, to magnify, to display the grace of God. And I think this is kind of funny. Because then you go over to chapter 2, verse 1. After, after sort of detailing how magnificent God's grace is. And detailing all that God has done for us in Christ. He says, but you were dead. You, Ephesians, before Christ came into your life, were dead in your transgressions and sin. And so that we don't miss it, he says it in verse one. He also says it in verse five, the second time. You were dead, same phrase, in your transgressions. You were dead. And the contrast can't be any more stark. Dead means dead. To be spiritually dead means to be spiritually insensate. To be dead. You have never in your entire life, when somebody told you that a friend died, you've never responded by saying, is he completely dead? How dead is he? Is he partially dead or is he sort of three quarters dead or is it 99% dead? No, he's dead. When you're dead, you're like stone dead. You're insensate, you don't respond. You're dead. And dead, is a pretty humble and a very lowly place to be. And it's Paul's intention that we would go there. That he would magnify and esteem and reveal to us the wonderful grace of God and help us to appreciate that before Christ, we were helpless, we were dead, we were lost. And Paul's point is to humble us so that we might see the magnificence of grace. Paul's point is saying, get low. Get as low as you possibly can. If you want to understand the length and breadth and height and depth, the grace of God, as I articulated in the first 14 verses of this book, then get low. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. Personally, I am convinced that the only thing that I contributed to my salvation was the sin that made it necessary. The only thing that I brought to my salvation was the sin that made it necessary. From beginning to end, salvation is of God. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for his glory alone. And so we must be humbled. We must get low. I have uh, near our house in, in Georgetown, there are all these walking trails, and I bump into one of the guys from my old church quite regularly. His name's David. He's a Scotsman like myself, born and raised in Scotland. And he's a hiker, but he takes it to another level. So he has gone to Nepal a couple of times and he has hiked to the Everest base camp, which is pretty impressive. And he says that the Everest base camp, when you're standing there looking up at Everest, he says it's awe-inspiring. It is breathtaking. He says when you fly over, you look down out of the window of your plane and you can see the mountains. You can see the Himalaya mountains and you know that Everest is down there but you can't really distinguish it because it's just another mountain amidst a whole pile of great mountains. 
But he says, when you get to the base camp, when you get low, when you're at the bottom and you're looking up, he says, it is breathtaking. And that's how it is with us in God's grace. Until we get real low, until we see ourselves for who the Bible says we really are, we can never begin to fully plumb the depths of the length and the breadth and the height and the depth of the grace of God for us. And until we do that, the Christian life, chapters three, four, five, and six, become really difficult. They're just rules and regulations. They're obligations that we must keep. But when we get grace, when the amazing grace of God grips us, suddenly something changes in our soul and it becomes a passion to live for Jesus. And all of a sudden, the power is there too by the presence of his Holy Spirit. So the more humble we can get before the living God, the more amazing his grace comes. And so in the beginning of the the book, in verse 3, he says this to sort of reinforce that point. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Everything that we are, everything that we receive in our Christian experience, every little bit of growth, the ability to believe the gospel, the gift of repentance, whatever it is, we have received it as a blessing from God in Christ. All that we enjoy of God's grace is totally and completely and utterly a result of the Father's blessing in Christ. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. It's a gift. And this is what these next 11 verses from from verse 3 through 14, speak about. In this passage of Scripture, Paul is going to talk about the work of God in salvation. And so today, next Sunday, and the following Sunday, we're going to be taking time to dig into these these verses, from these 11 verses, and to think about what God has done for us in Christ so that we can be amazed by God's amazing grace. We're going to think about what God has done for us in Jesus by the work of the Holy Spirit so that we can be captured again by the grace of God. Now, the way that Paul breaks this passage up is interesting. First, he speaks about the work of the Father. Then he speaks about the work of the Son in redemption. And then he speaks about the work of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to divide the passage up that way. We're going to talk today about the work of God in our salvation, how God's grace has been demonstrated to us. Next week, we're going to talk about Christ's work in our redemption. And lastly, we're going to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit, the Godhead, triune, the, the work of the triune God in our salvation. So I want to read for you verses 4 to 6. And think about what it is that God has done for us to redeem us. What was the Father's part in our redemption? Read it with me if you would. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to his 
the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved or in Christ. So for the glory of his grace, God the Father did something. Two things. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless before him. And in love, he predestined us to become adopted children of God. Now, I've been around long enough to know that if you want to start a fight amongst Christians, just throw out the conversation about election and predestination. That can start a real Donnybrook. That can throw the fox into the hen house pretty quick. And my, my purpose is, is not to do that. But I think right at the beginning, I need to put the, my cards on the table. And again, this is my opinion. I'm going to tell you what I think. I'm not telling you from six feet above contradiction that thus saith the Lord. But let me tell you what I think about these two subjects, election and predestination. My best understanding of the scriptures is this, that as I've already stated, the only thing that I contributed to my salvation was the sin that made it necessary. My salvation, as I understand the scripture, is all of God from beginning to end. I didn't contribute in any way. My choice to believe, my decision to repent, are only made possible by grace. Without his intervention, the truth of the gospel would have remained foolish to me. Without his quickening me, I would still be dead in my transgressions and sin, and I'd be loving it. Had it not been for the intervention of the Spirit of God, the Son of God, and the choices of the Father, I would happily continue on my way to hell. So you say, Paul, why do you believe that? Well, first of all, I believe it because I think the Bible teaches it. But stepping back just a little bit, thinking about how Paul addresses this subject in Ephesians, I would answer it this way. Before Christ saved me, because of Adam, I had a fallen, sinful nature. Because of Adam's sin, I was born dead, spiritually dead. And I needed to be regenerated. Because of my nature, I would not ever have chosen Jesus. I would never, ever have chosen to bow the knee to Christ. I'll, I'll try to illustrate this for you. I was born with a nature that is naturally repelled and repulsed by strong, fishy taste, right? That makes sense? I don't, maybe some of you like it, but I just don't. So as a consequence of who I was or who I am, I simply make choices. I don't go down the, the aisle at the supermarket and look for pickled herring. I get no interest in pickled herring. I don't, when, they, when, it, when it comes time to order a pizza, the guy said, do you want anchovies? I go, oof, don't want any anchovies. I hate anchovies. Don't talk to me about anchovies. Get them off my pizza. I don't want them in my Caesar salad. You see, my choice is rooted in who I am by nature. My tastes, my loves, what attracts me and what repulses me. And the Bible teaches us that men 
apart from Christ, love darkness rather than light. We want those things by nature that God doesn't want us to have. Romans 8 tells us that that we can't respond to him. The Bible tells us that the things of the Spirit of God without the intervention of God's grace are foolishness to us and we can't understand them, can't appreciate them. So what happened to me, and again, this is just me telling you my opinion on this issue, is that God intervened when I was dead and quickened me when I was outside of Christ. He placed his spirit within me and he gave me a new heart, a new nature. And he changed my tastes. He changed my longings. He changed my desires. He gave me a new nature. And in that, I was enabled to respond to the grace of God. I realize that sometimes these doctrines of election and predestination can be hard to grasp. And sometimes when we think about what I'm going to say today, we think, man, that, the God that you worship, Paul, is so unfair. He's so unjust. It seems that he's capricious and arbitrary and just choosing some and not others. So what I'm going to ask you to do this morning is this. Let's not fight about this, but let's step back and humble ourselves. Let's kind of go to Everest base camp and get as low as we possibly can before the magnificence of God's grace and let the scriptures be our guide. What do they say? Let's humble ourselves and go to the foot of the, foot of the mountain that we might understand and appreciate the grace of God. So, for the glory of his grace, God has done two things. First, he chose us in Christ. So he chose to place us in Christ that we would be holy and blameless before him. That's that's mind-boggling to me. What he's saying is before the foundation of the world... Before time existed, before God had done, before the world had been created, God made a decision about me, which blows my mind. And He chose to place me in Christ. He chose to place me in Jesus. He chose to place His love upon me. And to save me from the consequences of Adam's sin by including me in the blessing of what the second Adam would ultimately do on the cross. The plan of your salvation and the plan of my salvation, according to the apostle here, as best I understand it, began before time, before the foundation of the world, in the heart of God, when he chose to set his love upon you. When he chose to set his love upon me. And that's amazing grace. Me, with all of my carnality, and all of my sin, and all of my rebellion, and all of my morbidity and death, steeped in pride, in rebellion against us, against God, he chose to love me. 
So you say, like, why did he do it? Why did he love me? Paul doesn't tell us. He doesn't say. I have no idea. When I look in the mirror, I have no clue. But I do know this, that it was nothing about me that deserved it. There was nothing about me No nobility or spirituality that attracted his grace. There was nothing attractive about me that drew his mercy and his love and his compassion and his grace toward me. He just simply chose to love me. And he simply chose to love you. One of the blessings that I really like about Harvest Churches. And I've, I've been part of a Harvest Church now, or GCC Church, for probably three or four months since our church left our previous denomination and became part of Harvest. Is at the end of the service, you look at one, uh, the, the, the pastor looks at the congregation, and he says this, you are loved. And that is so, so, so true. I don't think... I don't think the first billion years of heaven will give you enough time to plumb the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of God for you. You are loved in a way that you have, you can't fully appreciate. That the God of creation, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jehovah, Yahweh, before time began, chose to love you. That's magnificent. It wasn't an undefined, amorphous, faceless group of people. It was you. He knew you and set his love upon you. And his goal was this, that you would be holy and blameless before him. So today, if you are in Christ, you are in Christ because he chose you and placed you in Christ so that when Christ went to the cross, you went to the cross with him. And when Christ was nailed to the cross, you were nailed to the cross with him. Your old self, that carnal dead part of you was nailed to the cross with Jesus. Your old man, Romans chapter six. And you were nailed there with him. And God vented his wrath upon his son because of our sin. And Christ took it. And in that moment, he gave us his righteousness. Like, it's it's just mind-boggling that God punished his son for our sins, that he took us with him to the cross, that our old nature was killed that day, It was slain that day on the cross. And it died. So that in time and space, God could give us a new nature, a new heart. And give us the righteousness of Christ. So when God sees you right today, when he looks into your heart, you know what he sees? Holy and blameless. That's who you are. I am holy and blameless before God because of Jesus. So what's the implication of all of this? 
Well, go back to verse 2. Grace and peace. God's grace has been shown to us in the fact that God chose us in him. And now because I am holy and blameless, God loves me unconditionally and absolutely and eternally with a love that will never let me go. If you have your Bibles, I'd just like to read a passage of Scripture from the book of Romans which sort of um, explains this in greater detail than I could. Uh, Romans chapter 8. I'll find it here in a second. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, and by the way, the word foreknow there doesn't mean sort of a precognizance. It means to love beforehand. It's a very very tender, beautiful word, that word know. Um, Adam knew his wife, and she had a son, and they named him Cain. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the images of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. And here's where Paul is like, truth response. What should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And here's the verse I want you to think about. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Think about that. The one who chose us to be in Christ gave up his son to make us holy and blameless. The price was enormous, grace. How is it possible that having given us his son, he will not give us everything else that we need for life and godliness. He chose to love you then, and he's not going to stop now. Later on in this passage, Paul tells us, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing in heaven, nothing in hell, nothing on earth. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. That, the grace of God holds us. And so you should know peace today. It is your birthright as a child of God. You are holy and blameless before him right now. So you need to have peace. Now, a lot of us don't have peace right now. We're stressed out because of the pandemic. We're stressed out. We think about our futures. We think about our families. There's things that are affecting us, our health. And the list is myriad. Regardless of what you're being afflicted with right now, hear this. God the Father loved you before the foundation of the world, and he chose you to be in Christ. Christ did what was necessary in order to make you holy and blameless before him. He loves you with an eternal, absolute, unchanging love that will never let you go. He knows exactly the circumstances of your life. He knows what you're struggling with. He knows that health issue. He knows all of the challenges that you're having, financial, at work, wherever it is. And he is in control. He loves you. 
Having given us his son, how will he not also freely with him give us all things? Rest in his grace. Because when you understand that, when grace grips you, there's nothing that this world can hit you with that can knock you off, that can, can rob you of your joy, rob you of your peace. You see, it's understanding, it's getting to the bottom of Everest and looking up and seeing how magnificent the grace of God actually is that allows us to live faithfully today. So he chose you because he loved you. And it goes on to say this, before the foundation of the world, in love he predestined you, he predestined you to be adopted into his family. Listen to how he says it. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So secondly, for the glory of his grace, he predestined us to become adopted children of God. So before the foundation of the world, God predetermined what would happen to us in this world. And he said, I am determined, I am predestining this outcome because it is my will to do so. And he's God and he gets to do what he wants. I am going to bring this child into my family. I'm going to adopt this child as my own. We were adopted into the family of God. So what are the implications for this according to this text? Well, first of all, first of all, We were adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. There's this idea that kicks around in our our culture that says we're all God's children. Well, every one of us, we're all God's children. He created us, we're all God's children. And that's simply not true according to the the text of Scripture. Look look with me at chapter 2 where Paul's talking about those who are dead in their sins. Let me read it for you, the first couple of verses. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. You see, in this world there are two kinds of people. There are children of God who have become children of God through Christ, and there is everyone else, children of wrath. They may be religious. They may be good people. They may try to live moral lives, and and many of them do. But unless they are adopted into the family of God through Jesus, they're not children of God. You see this clearly in in John chapter 8 where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and and they're protesting and saying, we're sons of God, we're children of God. And Jesus looks at them and says, you're of your father the devil. These guys were religious. They were moral people. They worked hard at following all the Old Testament laws. They were scrupulous about trying to follow the teachings of the Old Testament. And Jesus looked at them and says, "You're you're of your father the devil. That's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. 
So a child of God, what does it mean to be a child of God? Is someone who has come into relationship with God, his father, through the work of Christ. John 1.12, but all who receive him, who believe on his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. It's through Christ, believing on him and trusting him and him alone. But secondly, this whole idea of adoption is a beautiful picture of the church. It's a beautiful picture of the church because it is an expression of our collective identities as the people of God. Who we are at the core of our being is that we are children of God. We are children of God. Our identity isn't defined by our intelligence. It's not defined by how we look. It isn't defined by the amount of money that we have, the house we live in, or the car that we drive, or the clothes that we wear, or the the title on our, our business card. Our identity is that we are children of God. That's the core of who we are. That, that identifies us, that sets us apart in this world. We are God's kids. And as soon as God adopts us into his family, by the working of the Holy Spirit, he begins to shape us so quickly. There begins to be a family resemblance amongst us. We begin to look alike. We begin to talk alike. We begin to be these kind of people who live out the values of chapters 4, 5, and 6. We don't let any unwholesome word come out of our mouth. We speak the truth in love. We, we function in marriage the way God has called us to. Husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church. Wives submit to their husbands as the church responds to Jesus. We live in unity together, a unity that is created by the bond of the Spirit amongst us. You see, we begin to look alike. We begin to have a family resemblance. We begin to become more and more and more and more like our big brother, Jesus Christ. We become a loving, unified body because each of us is a child of God according to his will. But then thirdly, And this is, I I think, a beautiful thing. We have instant access to our Father. Instant access to our Father who loves us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says this, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find help in time of trouble. As a child of God, you have the right at any moment because you are holy and blameless, to go barging into the presence of your Father. Regardless of how how you failed, regardless of the struggles that you're having, regardless of the fear that is assaulting you, regardless of the doubt that you're wrestling with, you have the privilege as a child of God to go instantly into his presence and present to him your petitions and requests so that you may find help in time of trouble. 